Now in a great house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here ends the reading of God's word. We're continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of 2 Timothy. Paul has been drawing our attention last several weeks to how easy it is to cheat when we come, when it comes to what we believe. How easy it is to let ideas and teachings come into the church, come into our lives, and subtly change how we understand who God is and how we understand what God himself is doing on this earth. How easy it is to teach things that aren't true, how easy it is to listen to things that aren't true. Because if you do that, then you run into less conflict with the outside society. You probably won't have to suffer. And as we've been reading along, Paul's doing something here that is very uncomfortable for us. He's calling people out. He is naming individuals. Phygelus, Hermogenes, Hymenaeus, Philetus. People who have either loosened their hold on the gospel themselves or who are actively teaching other people to do so. Paul is identifying people who Timothy knows personally by name. And he's doing that because he's driving home his point that this is not some abstract philosophical discussion he's having, but that what he's talking about is real life, that it affects real people in the local church. And the reason that this is here in Scripture is because this has always been the case among God's people. We saw last week with Korah and his followers that there have always been people among God's people who will challenge what God has said. They might even mask that challenge using religious-sounding language to challenge what God has said. But they challenge because those challenges find a home in us. They, they play into what we want. They lessen that tension that we feel with the rest of the world. And Paul is communicating to you and me that this is just the normal operating condition of the church. That there are people of influence who use their influence to teach things that then undermine other people's faith. That was true back in Israel's day. It's true in Timothy's day. It's going to be true in your day and mine. And Paul is telling us now that we have to do something about it, that we can't just ignore it. That if we ignore it, then to use his expression from verse 17 last week, it will spread like gangrene among the people. Ignore false teaching, and it will produce spiritual rot among God's people. And so we have to address it. But Paul wants us to address it with hope. Hope that we see in verse 25. Hope so that we don't give up on people. 
Because there is hope that even if they or if we have believed something wrong, have set ourselves on a dangerous path that moves away from God, there is still real hope that we can be healed from spiritual rot, that we can be reset, that we can come to that knowledge of the truth. And that's what Paul's focus is now. He's giving us very practical ways in order to help that restoration. And he says to do that first, that you have to deal with yourself before you try to do anything else. Second, that you have to reject all the methodologies of argumentation that you have picked up from the larger world. Third, that you have to embrace humility as your methodology. And fourth, that you have to trust God to do what only God can do. So four points today. Deal with yourself first. Reject the methods of this world. Embrace humility instead and trust God to do what only God can do. Let's begin. Paul sets the stage in verses 20 to 21, telling you that in this context of conflict over in the church over what is and isn't true, that you are either going to be useful to the Lord in engaging that, or you're not going to be useful. That you will either engage it like he would, or you won't. That verse 20, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. There is good work to do for the master of the house. There's good work to do for the Lord, work that is in line with what he wants to accomplish in his kingdom. Work that you can do, that you can be part of. And you just notice here, this is an open invitation. This is an invitation from God to any one of his family to partner with him. God's goal is to purify people for himself who he can live with and then who will live with him. And he is inviting, inviting you and me to be part of that work. And the criteria for who gets to help him is not because you come from the right background. Not because you have a certain gift and talent mix. Not because you're at the top of your class or are successful in life. The basis is your personal holiness. That if you cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, if you take advantage of the resources that God gives you, his spirit and work in you, empowering you to be godly, convicting you when you're not, enabling you to turn away from sin, if you will do that, you'll be a vessel for honorable use, ready for every good work that the Lord gives you to do. What's important to the Lord, in other words, is not how great you are. Let me say it a little provocatively. It's how good you are in the sense of being holy, set apart, how much your life lines up with his. And that only makes sense if you think about it. If you are tremendously gifted, if you're brilliant and entrepreneurial and charismatic and energetic, but you are not cleansed from what is dishonorable, if you have still given yourself to the things that God is not doing, then you're going to take all of that incredible giftedness and use it for what? For dishonorable purposes which here means anything that does not help direct people to the Lord, to what is right and true about him. In that case, all of your incredible giftedness is just going to turbocharge you 
in the wrong direction. So that you have this really big dishonorable impact on people. But Paul says, if you will cleanse yourself, then even if you have very small giftings, the Lord will take those and use you those to do good work, eternal work, an impact that will last, that will have eternal value. Francis Schaeffer, the pastor and theologian, said it this way in a sermon. The sermon's called, No Little People, No Little Places. And he says there, the scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated and unconsecrated people. Very helpful sermon. If you're struggling to believe that God can use you or that he wants to use you, you might find that sermon helpful. I I have. Uh, very easy to find online. Just take the title and look it up. No little people, no little places. Very easy to read. Probably take you about 20 minutes before bed some night. It'll help you realize how much God actually does want to use you in his kingdom and how much he can use you for. What Schaefer writes in that sermon underlines what Paul says here, that God gives an open invitation to all of his people, that he will use anyone who wants to be used. He'll use anyone for good works, for the things that he approves of that have lasting value, if we'll use what he's already given us to purify ourselves. You think, okay, well, that sounds good. How do you do that? Verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. How do you cleanse yourself? There's a twofold movement here. There is a from and a to. You are to flee something and pursue something else. First, what do you have to flee from? You flee from youthful passions. And you have to think bigger here than just sexual immorality. That's certainly part of it. But it's bigger there because the word for passions comes from a Greek word that we've talked about here before. The word is epithumia. We've talked about that before, and it's a word that you find translated in, into English in a variety of ways. Sometimes you'll see it here as passions or sometimes lusts, cravings, desires, and it has that sort of bandwidth there because it's a word that's getting at this idea of something that you are passionate for, something that you desire but that you really super desire. So it's driving you from within your heart. In other words, when you see this word desire, passions, epithemia, it's something that's taking place below the level of your intellect, below the level of your actions. It's taking place at the level of what you worship. You have found something that you find more satisfying than the Lord, something that you value more highly than you value Him, something that you have now decided internally below your mind that you'll have at all costs, even if God says no. And in that sense, these youthful passions are not necessarily bad. It doesn't say here that they are evil desires, but they are desires that have grown too big. They've become excessive. They're not under control. They're, they're desires that no longer have any boundaries. 
And because they no longer have any boundaries, they're life-dominating. May not have started that way. May even have been good things at one point in time, things that were under control. But now they're no longer good things. Why? Because you've worshipped them. You've raised them to something that is an ultimate thing, something that you will now do anything to satisfy. And Paul describes them as youthful, not because just youth have them, but they are the things that we strive for when we're younger. Relationships, financial security, reputation, all of those being known as a successful person, not necessarily bad things when they are in their right place, but the kind of things that can take over our lives. So we get locked onto them. And then instead of controlling them, keeping them within these good boundaries, they end up controlling us, controlling the direction of our lives and the decisions we make. And when something controls us more than the Lord, God says, flee from it. Don't make peace with it. Don't indulge it. Don't cheat. Get away from it. Cleanse yourself from it. Flee from it and instead replace it. See, the Christian life is always that from to. It doesn't just say stop. It says turn to something else. Turn from that and pursue this instead. Pursue what? Pursue righteousness, the things that God approves of. Pursue faith. Grow more confident that God loves you more than he loved his own life. Pursue love. Develop greater love and loyalty both to God and to other people. Pursue peace. Work hard to live in harmony with others. If you think about those things, meditate on them a little bit, you realize that they're the opposite of what you flee. So you pursue righteousness instead of pursuing these excessive, out-of-control passions. You pursue faith more than you spend time building your life on yourself, on, your, on other people, on anything in the physical world. You pursue love. You move outward instead of being self-absorbed. And you pursue peace instead of relational turmoil, chaos with people. How do you cleanse yourself so that you can be used by God to live a life that is worthwhile and good? Flee from anything that is contrary to him and pursue a life that's built around a relationship with him. A life like he lives that, build, that takes on his character traits. And you have to be careful here. You can't afford to let yourself think like a Westerner because you can't do this on your own. You need a community of people who do this together. You need to be surrounded by a group of people who are running in the same direction. See, if you're going to move toward God in a world that does not think it needs him, doesn't think it needs to listen to him, then you need to find other people who are also working to cleanse themselves. And sometimes there's stages in life where you realize that's hard to do. Maybe you move away from friends or your friends move away from you or your friends change. And you have to work to find these kind of relationships, the ones where you urge each other not to be ruled by excessive desires, but where you're urging each other to pursue godliness instead. I was really encouraged recently. I have permission to share this story. We had a young man visit Renewal about a month ago. 
he had moved into the area from out of state, was looking for a church, and we may actually be a little too far for him to make this his home church. But he and I had a chance to talk together about how you go about looking for a church. One of the things that he said that he thought was important was that he wanted to be part of a group of people who were growing in their faith, that he wanted small group relationships, discipleship relationships that would push him to mature, that would keep him maturing. I was very encouraged talking to a young person who had that kind of passion because he's looking for the right thing. And in that conversation, he's actually encouraging me. He's an example to me, I think, to all of us of what to look for, not just in a church in general, but in our friend circles. This is important for all of us, whether we are new to renewal, whether we've been here for years. We have to be in relationships with other people, not just because we like each other, but because we recognize in someone else the same desire to grow in the faith that we find in our own hearts. And if we look around at the friends that we have and we don't find that desire, it doesn't mean that we drop those friends. It means that we have to start looking around outside that circle to find people who we can grow with, to look for people who want to grow, people that we can share our lives with, share our struggles, our successes, who will share their lives with us. So we urge each other to see God's love for us more and to deepen our own love for Him. That's important for all of us. Let me take a moment here to say it's absolutely essential for our high school and our college students. So hear me on this. Let me just take a moment. This is essential if you're in high school or college because this is another one of those very important parts of life that you have to take ownership of. It's another part of what it means to keep growing and maturing into an adult. See, when you're little, your parents teach you about God. They bring you to church so that you can learn to be with God's people, they are responsible to make sure that you have that environment to learn and grow in. As you get older, that responsibility shifts more and more to you. You have to take responsibility for your own faith, for your relationship with God. That means it's more and more on you to do the work of looking for those friendships, that community of people who also want to grow in their faith. And that means you have to do some evaluation. You have to do some thinking. Because not everyone who goes to church wants to grow in their faith. And so you can't just assume that every friendship that you could have will be helpful to you in your faith. But like this young man who's coming from out of state, you have to take on the responsibility, you have to do the work of finding those people who are growing and then reach out and build friendships with them so that you can grow with them. Why? Because this is not something that super-Christians do. <laughs> this is just what it means to be a normal Christ follower. This is what the gospel does. It enters ordinary, normal people's lives. And when it enters your life, it transforms you. It turns you from someone who used to oppose Christ, someone who is just happy being driven along by youthful passions, turns you from someone who was like that into someone who's more and more like Christ, someone who serves him along with others who the gospel also transforms. 
Gospel turns you into someone who is honorable, increasingly transformed so that God can use you. That's point one. Before you deal with ungodly spiritual rot in the church, in your family, among your friends, you have to deal with yourself first before you try to do anything else. What else do you need to do? Point two, you have to reject the methodologies that you and I have learned that we've picked up from our larger world for how you go about dealing with conflicting beliefs. Verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. You remember where we started? Paul's warning us there are going to be times when people in the church will say things, will teach things that just aren't true. That there will be people like we saw from last week, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who will lead people away from the Lord and upset their faith, who will make people question, what's really true here? And when you have that situation, you have the potential for quarrels, for endless wranglings that just don't ever seem to resolve. Now, when someone is saying something or living in a way that does not take seriously, in a way that changes what God has said, you realize there has to be a conversation about that, whether that's with your spouse, your child, your friend. You can't just let that go. There has to be some kind of engagement that says either we hold to what God has said and we follow Him, or we hold to what we want to believe and we let no people know that we're no longer following Christ. See, you can believe whatever you want to believe. Anyone can do that. It's pr that's legitimate. Anyone can believe whatever they want. But what you can't do is believe whatever you want and bring those beliefs into thoughts into the church, into your other relationships, beliefs that differ from what God has said, and still call yourself a faithful follower of Christ. Because that's not what it means to faithfully follow Christ. Instead, you have to be honest and call yourself something else, because that's no longer what it means then to be a Christian. You can't come into the church, you can't hang out with your friends and expect them all to agree with you if it means having to disagree with Christ. You can believe anything you want, but you can't expect the church to give up following Christ in order to follow you. You didn't die for anyone. You didn't give up everything in life for anyone. Jesus did. That's why we follow him more than we follow anyone else. And so there's going to have to be some kind of conversation about those conflicting beliefs when they occur. But that conversation about two streams of thought that go in different directions, either obeying all that Christ has said or not, that conversation is not handled like the world handles conflicts over differing ideas. How does the world handle those things? We quarrel and fight over them. We quarrel and fight in order to what? To win to win the argument, to make points, to make the other person look stupid, to get cheered on by the people who agree with us. That's what you see on X or, or any other social media. There's no honest desire to debate in order to learn. No honest desire to come closer to a knowledge of the truth. Instead, what, what do you see there? It's all about owning the other side, about capitalizing on things that someone said unwisely about zinging them with this unanswerable dig. It's a zero-sum game where I win, you lose, or you win, I lose. It's about owning the other side. 
What is all that? It's the result of youthful passions. It's the result of these excessive desires that clash with what? With other people's excessive desires. See, when there is no higher authority to appeal to, that is over my desires, over your desires, there's no authority that we have to obey. When there's no power to rely on to bring our desires back under control, no power outside of you, no power outside of me to rein our desires back in, when that's the case, our passions have to clash when they go in these different directions. This just makes sense. Our world is incredibly ugly, but it makes sense. See, when you factor God out of the picture so that the only thing that you're left with is your own desires, what will you do with them? You have to justify them. You have to justify why you should assert your desire over someone else's, or you have to give in, you have to capitulate to someone else's out-of-control desire. You have to win or lose if there's no referee, if there's nothing higher to appeal to. And you are then left with what? With this unending quarrel. That's just part of our world that we live in. And we cannot afford to bring that approach to differences into the church. Can't learn from the way that the world handles itself and import that methodology back into God's community. That will not get us to the truth of what God has said. That's point two, what we don't do. So then what do we do? Point three, we engage each other. But we do so by embracing humility as our methodology. Verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Again, you see there the underlying assumption. There's going to have to be some kind of engagement, some kind of instruction that has to take place, some kind of correction back to what God thinks from where someone went off the rails. Book of Judges in the Old Testament. I, I, really hard book to read because it's a very long case study that takes place over several hundred years of watching the people of God go off the rails of watching a community of people self-destruct. It's one long progressive death spiral where over and over and over people just keep blowing God off and blowing each other up. And the reason for that death spiral, the problem, you get it in the final several chapters over and over and over that go from one incredible inhumanity to a different obscenity, the reason is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the issue. They wandered from what God had told them it meant to love Him and to love others. They wandered then from creating a healthy community because they had their own idea of what a good life would be. And they took that idea and prioritized it over what God had said was right in His eyes. When that happens among us, either individually, corporately, we have to be taught, maybe even taught again, what God thinks and how he thinks. And so when you have these kind of situations where God's people are in danger of wandering from him, we need 
someone, many someones to come who, verse 24, are able to teach us. Verse 25, who can correct us. And the only reason that we would not want that is if we're still pursuing our excessive desires that are out of control. Instead of pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. See, if my heart is set on God, on knowing Him, being with Him, doing what pleases Him, then when you come to me and point something out that's wrong, not something you don't like, but something that's wrong before the Lord, my heart wants to hear that if I'm oriented toward the Lord. It's only when my heart is set on something else other than God that I hate the thought of being called out, of not being seen as good as I thought I was. And that perspective that it is good to be taught, good to be corrected, let me just share personally, that's hard for me. That's hard for me to hold on to. It feels like that's something that I have to learn over and over and over again. To learn that being taught, being corrected by someone from Scripture, that that's not shameful. That it doesn't mean that I'm no good or that my worth and value have now been diminished because you had to correct me. Instead, what is that? That's a moment where I have to relearn the gospel because I have drifted. It's a moment where I have to remind myself that I, on my own, don't bring anything of worth and value to God. So if you assess my worth and value based on what I've done, you would agree with God that my goodness is like filthy rags. And therefore, there is nothing that you can see in me that he already hasn't. That's half the gospel. Here's the other half. God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son for me in order to make me one of his children, to give me his standing with God so that I now have a value that I have not yet begun to understand or imagine regardless of what you see in me. So if I feel shamed by you when you correct me, what's that mean? I need the gospel again. I've been out of touch with my need for the gospel and out of touch with the love of God that is in the gospel. So I have to go back again to the gospel. I have to live in the love of God while I hear from you. But think here for a moment. How does the gospel come to us? How did Jesus come to us? How did he come to this earth? He came in the same way that we now go to each other in verse 24. Jesus came to this earth kindly. He saw our need and he cared about it. He patiently endured evil, did not lose his temper when people fought with him, didn't throw up his hands and walk away. Instead, Jesus stayed engaged, and this, this absolutely blows my mind. People would ask Jesus questions to trip him up, to trap him, to test him, to make his life miserable. He knew it was coming. They did it anyway. And he answered them every time. What is that? That's patiently enduring evil. That's love. Wasn't nasty. Instead, verse 25, he corrected his opponents with gentleness. Notice he did correct them. Didn't just let them keep in let them keep on thinking the same things that were bad for them. 
but he did it gently. You never get the sense that he was caught up in a controversy, never that he was wrangling back and forth with someone. He always taught, always corrected, always had the last word in every conversation and dispute. Why? He pointed people back to God and to the Word of God everywhere he went. And people loved him, could not get enough of him, flocked all around him, wanted to hear more from him. You realize he's not mean-spirited, not critical, not contentious. His enemies were. But even when, they, when he was calling them out, being very blunt with them, he would not adopt their approach. Instead, he came correcting and instructing with the heart of God. If our hearts are pursuing God and all that is good, we'll speak into each other's lives with that same attitude, that same heart. We won't check out when people believe things that will undermine their faith. We'll step in, we'll talk about what God thinks, but we'll do it in a way, let me say it this way, we'll do it with a methodology that flows out of the gospel, that flows out of how Jesus came to us. And again, that just makes sense, right? We can't hope for the results of the gospel in someone else's life, that they will turn from opposing Christ to serving him. We can't hope for gospel results in someone's life if our method of speaking doesn't come from within the gospel. See, the gospel doesn't simply inform the content of what you say. It informs how you say it. If we're going to represent Christ to our larger world, to each other, we not only have to learn to say what he would say, but we have to say it with his humility, with the way he would say it. Think, man, Bob, that's way above my pay grade. How do you do that? Yes, you have to cleanse yourself, but what is it that gives you confidence to then speak boldly, clearly, to correct without getting yourself all twisted up and into it personally, so that you feel like now you have to win at all costs. How do you do that? Point four, you trust God to do what only God can do. Verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You realize that, yes, you are called to do something. You're called to teach, to correct. But you are not called to make the other person accept what you say. You're not called to make them embrace what you say. You have a responsibility, but your responsibility begins and ends with what you say, not with anything that happens after that. Now, why is that? It's because at its heart, the issue is spiritual. What's happening when someone believes something that goes counter to God? Well, a combination of things. They clearly are involved. James 1.14 tells us each one of us is led astray by our own desires. That's true. But there's this other truth here, verse 26 in our passage, that the spiritual world is involved, that the devil is involved, that there is a personal being who is trapping ensnaring people, capturing them to do His will, co-opting them, using their own desires so that they end up living in a way that promotes His agenda, not Christ's. 
And the only way that you can escape from that snare, the only way for someone to come to their senses, to repent, to turn from the desires that control them, to want to turn to God, to what He says and what He does, the only way that happens is if God grants them repentance. It takes an act of God, a gift of God. It takes the gift of being able to repent in order to repent. And when you're engaged in these conversations, you realize that you and I have no control over that. And that's one of those places where it's so easy to get tangled up. It's a place where Jesus never did. He said things as clearly as you possibly can, and then he left the decision up to other people as to whether or not they were going to embrace or reject what he said. He understood that unless the Spirit of God brought enlightenment to someone's heart, we saw that with Peter a couple weeks ago, that unless the Spirit of God brings revelation, enlightenment to someone, they will never have it. They'll never come to knowledge of the truth. That's why teaching and correcting is not a matter of whether or not you have the right personality for it, the right ability to speak, the right rhetorical ability, the best, most cogent arguments. It's about whether or not God has granted the other person repentance. I was talking with a friend this past week. She's been drifting from the Lord, knows it. She's not reading her Bible. She's not spending any time with the Lord in prayer. She knows that that's what she needs, and she's confused about why she doesn't do the things and get the things that she needs. And so at one point, she looked at me and she said, why don't I do what I know is good for me? Why don't I do the things that I actually like doing? Now, it's very easy in that moment to go to something naturalistic, to something that's just human-oriented and human-centered, things that only deal with her as a person. And she's, what? She's not making herself do something that she knows would be good for her, pray and read her Bible. There's too much going on in her world. She's demoralized by the way that other Christians behave. She has bad habits from the night before that undermine her the next day. All of that is true. But if that's where we start and if that's all we talk about, we are pretending that this is not at heart a spiritual problem that needs direct supernatural power to change. Instead, we're treating it as something that she can overcome something that she should overcome simply by the, the strength and the power of her own will. <laughs> something that she and I have demonstrated for years that we just don't have the strength and ability to do. You can't let yourself fall into that natural expl naturalistic explanation of the world and think that that's enough. It's true, we have a physical reality. That's not the only truth. We have a spiritual side of us. And you will never solve spiritual problems through physical means. You'll just create new problems. And that, again, is a truth that's very hard to hold on to. I think it always has been. It's hard for us in the church to hear that when there are disagreements, that you cannot on your own simply talk someone into a knowledge of the truth that you cannot talk someone into believing and accepting the truth with joy so that it just changes their life. You can't do that. That's hard to hold on to. It's hard for parents to hear that with their children. 
when their children will not embrace Christ in his ways. It's hard for children to hear that with their parents when their parents won't embrace Christ in his ways. And it is so tempting in those moments to strategize, to try to figure out what can we change so that this other person will change. I think that's always been hard to believe that we don't have the power or the ability to fix our own spiritual problems or anyone else's. And yet, if you live in the modern world, I think it's even harder. Because when you have a society like our secular society, one that decides we can live fine on our own without God, that we have everything that we need within ourselves to fix ourselves, then you believe that we have to be the ones who bring conviction to other people. And so we ramp up the pressure, trying to get them to feel bad. Or we think that we have to wrestle them into seeing things the right way. That we then have to find methods, coping skills, so they can live a good life without relying on God. And then we have to help them. Deal with all of the mental and emotional burnout that comes from taking on more responsibility in life than God ever intended any one of us to have. And as we feel the burden of all of that pressure to do that in someone else's life, we get frustrated, tired. We wear out from trying. And we don't realize that it all comes from trying to do something that we don't have the ability to accomplish. We're trying to fix spiritual problems with physical means, purely human means. If our desire is to see gospel transformation in each other's lives, that can only come by speaking gospel truth in gospel ways. We have to rely on God to do what only God can do, to lead people to a knowledge of the truth. You and I can't make that happen. But God has said he can and that he wants to use us in helping other people come to that knowledge. If we will take seriously our need to be cleansed, if we'll embrace his methods, trusting him to do what his power alone can do. And if you're like me, you start to wonder, does this really work? Do people really change? I hear of so many church splits, so much fighting among God's people. You know these stories. People walking away from the faith start wondering, is, is this even worth trying? Can people really change after they've gotten spiritually trapped? Can my child change? My parent, my friend, my spouse? Can people really change? When you feel that way, remind yourself of where you've already seen this at work where you already have seen someone change dramatically, where you yourself have personally benefited from them changing. <laughs> Remind yourself, actually, you're benefiting from it right now as you read 2 Timothy. You remember who wrote this? It's the Apostle Paul. That is not the name that he had the first time you meet him in Scripture. Instead, he was known then as Saul, and he was not known as someone who was kind or gentle when he disagreed with people. What was it that drove him at that time? His passion, out of control, his passion was trying to prove to God that he was good enough for God, that he was worthy of God and worthy of God's love. 
And so he lived his life believing that you get what you deserve. And so he went all out to prove that he deserved to be with God. Passion that was controlling him. And then he ran into Christians. People who believe that you can never be good enough for God. <laughs> that, that if you get what you deserve, you're not getting God. What you really need instead is what Jesus deserved, which is to live in God's presence. Saul hears this and he thinks, they're leading people astray, leading them away from God. And his response was not to kindly instruct them, not patiently endure them, not gently correct them. His response was to crush them. Stephen, a Christian leader, was stoned to death. Saul stood there approving, agreeing. This is the right way to handle Christians. He thought Stephen got what he deserved, and then Saul decided others should get what they deserve. So he set off to look for Christians. The book of Acts tells us that he was breathing out threats and murder against Christ's disciples, and that he set out to arrest and punish Christians, and in his own words, that he persecuted Christ's followers to death. Now think for a moment. What, what would justice be? If God was fair, if God judged Saul according to Saul's standard, what did Saul deserve to get for destroying so many lives, so many families of people who had never done anything wrong to him? He deserved to get what he had given. Deserved to be threatened, arrested, killed. He had made himself God's enemy by persecuting God's family. He was taking the lives of people that Jesus had given his life for. So if God gave him what he deserved, treated Saul the way that he was treating others, God would have breathed out murderous threats against Saul. Would have arrested Saul, punished Saul, killed him, and stood by approving of his death. It was God's turn to give Saul everything he deserved. And God didn't take his turn. Appeared to Saul. He had patiently endured Saul's evil and then he befriended Saul. Kindly taught him where he had been wrong. Gently corrected him. Gave him the gift of repentance. And led him to a knowledge of the truth. The truth that instead of Saul dying to pay for what Saul had done, God himself would die to pay for Saul. That Jesus had paid for everything Saul had ever done wrong. That Jesus had gotten what Saul deserved. So that now Saul could have what Jesus deserved, a righteousness from God that he could never earn on his own. Saul got to see the foolishness of what he had believed as Christ led him to know what was true. And it was that experience of God's kindness in granting him repentance, treating him in ways that he didn't deserve, that transformed Saul. And it transformed him so much, he had to have a new name. He became Paul, who now treated other people the way that God had treated him. He became someone who could kindly teach, who's teaching us this morning, who could patiently endure all the ways he was mistreated and still care enough about the trap that other people were in to gently correct them so that we now benefit this morning as he teaches us. What's that tell you? 
this really works. The gospel really works. God really does transform people, even the most hardened. It tells you he can do the same for you. He can do the same for the people that you love. So that you and they become honorable vessels, just like he used Paul to reach out and touch our lives this morning. He can use you to reach out and touch other people's lives. Enter into this. Experience the gospel again and again and again. Get filled up with the love of God. And he will use you in exactly the same way. Lord Jesus, thank you that you did not enter into our lives once and then disappear and leave us with no direction, no guidance for how we live the rest of our time on this earth. Thank you, Lord, that your desire is to connect with us over and over and over again, that we would walk with you, that you would continue to transform us so that we are people who increasingly act like you, look like you, sound like you in the ways that we live. Lord, do that. Give us a, a passion for you, a passion that is greater than any other one that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.